Welcome to Reviving Virtue, where we dissect the contemporary narratives and the epistemological and ontological frameworks that shape our moral universe. Today, we're diving into John Dewey again, and I'm going to focus on a chapter of a book I'm reading, and the chapter is written by John Sturr. Now, his portrayal of Dewey's social and political philosophy will serve as our compass for today. We will also intertwine Dewey's idea of habit and impulse within our democratic engagements and explore the essence of creativity and creative action as a catalyst for societal transformation. So let's embark on this journey. So Dewey's perspective, as elucidated by Stir, posits that democracy is not merely a governmental structure, but it's a way of life, a mode of interaction, communication, and communal existence in our shared world. This view surpasses the narrow confines of democracy as simply electoral processes or governance systems, which is how we conceive it today. Instead, it is fundamentally an experience interlaced with our daily individual interactions, which both shape and are shaped by our communal bonds. Grasping this is pivotal for a comprehensive understanding of Dewey's notion of the public and democracy. So quoting Dewey, Stir reminds us that, to quote, democracy is a way of life controlled by a working faith in the possibilities that may result from intelligent judgment and action. This faith is not blind optimism, but an acknowledgement of potentiality, a melioralistic recognition that we, as a collective, have the capacity to enact positive change through reflection and concerted effort. So let's revisit just two key terms I just mentioned right there. So first, intelligence, or intelligent judgment. For Dewey, intelligent isn't simply a label to be affixed to an individual, like me saying, hey, my kid is very intelligent, although I like to think that. Rather, what Dewey means by intelligence represents a method that entails several critical actions. It requires that individuals and the community to which they belong engage in a process to ensure that proper judgment of actions are made. A meliorist is a term coined by William James, and it's a word I can barely say. It's someone who believes that the world can be made better by human effort. It doesn't imply a naive optimism, but rather a hopeful perspective that progress is possible through deliberate and thoughtful action. You have to be deliberate. So moving into the crux of Dewey's theory of action, habits, according to Dewey, are those ingrained patterns of behavior that shape our responses to the world. While they provide a stabilizing force, they also risk becoming the shackles that restrict creative thought and impede progress. The antidote, Dewey suggests, and stir echoes, is found in the cultivation of impulses, those sparks of spontaneity that propel us towards novel solutions and paths less trodden. It is in this interplay of habit and impulse that the potential for creative action, the kind of action that can transform societies and break the inertia of the status quo, is realized. There, now, Stir quotes Dewey here, asserting that, quote, the end of democracy is a radical end. For it is an end that has not been adequately realized in any country at any time. Now, in this context, end resonates with the Aristotelian notion of telos. So, it's an ultimate purpose or goal. Dewey's statement beckons us to view democracy as an ever-evolving project. It's an ideal that's perpetually on the horizon, compelling us toward a future of greater inclusivity, active participation, and responsive communal bonds. So as we synthesize Dewey's thoughts through Stir's lens, we confront the task Dewey sets before us, the renewal of democracy. 
It is not merely the rejuvenation of institutions, but the reinvigoration of communal spirit, the rekindling of a democratic ethos that values each voice and nurtures the capacities of all its members. Now, Dewey was savage when it came to the state of philosophy during his time and predicted if it did not alter its course, it would end up exactly what we have today, which is pretty much useless, right? Stir spends time looking at Dewey's critique of American philosophy's potential futures, highlighting the urgent need for philosophical engagement with the real world rather than the insular emphasis on abstract technical formalism, which is what we have today. Right. So central to Dewey's philosophy is the belief that its revitalization hinges on a return to practical relevancy and to community service. This, of course, would necessitate philosophers to descend from the ivory towers and engage with the world they are situated within. Such an endeavor calls for courage, creativity, and humble action of self-reflection, qualities sorely missing from the contemporary American philosophy that we are immersed in today. Dewey envisions a tripartite reformation. Firstly, philosophers must eschew the allure of certainty and eternal truths for the embrace of the living reality and its contingent evolving truths. It's a call to turn away from the surety of intellectual constructs to the contingent and the pluralism of social life. A life where philosophy is not an observer, but an active participant in crafting societal narratives and solutions. I mean, this is one of the main failures of, of contemporary philosophy, especially in the American tradition. It skews the, the responsibility of being creative and actively engaging with the world we live in today. And it really hides, I mean, I see American philosophers today hiding behind these constructs that they build and not actually engaging in the actual world we live in. Uh, I know this will make some people very upset to hear, but I mean, Dewey posited that this is the world we, we were going into. And he saw the American tradition rooted in the analytic philosophy as uh, as completely removed from the reality of our lived experience. And now secondly, Dewey posits that the philosophical praxis cannot be siloed from cultural forces and epochal paradigm changes, right? This is what I was just saying in my little riff there. This assertion implies that there must be an interdisciplinary approach where philosophy meshes with other social sciences and humanities, engaging in a dialogue of cultural reconstruction that is unceasing and symbiotic. This is completely absent in modern philosophy. And lastly, and most significantly, Dewey's pragmatism demands a cultural milieu where old dogmas yield to new inquiries, where the rigidity of old intellectual traditions is supplemented by a dynamic ethos of thinking and action. Stir stresses this in the, in the uh, chapter that I read, that Dewey's insistence on a cultural climate that is conducive to the fertile cross-pollination of ideas and to the valuing of philosophy not as a repository of knowledge, but as a catalyst for social innovation and democratic vibrancy. In this vein, Stir's portrayal of Dewey's summons to philosophers transcends a mere shift in scholarly attention. It represents an inherent evolution towards praxis. For Dewey, philosophers are to abandon the allure of esoteric debate in favor for a re-engagement with the public square. The agora of contemporary discourse, if you know your Greek history there tackling the pressing challenges of their error. This denotes a praxis of thought wherein intellectual endeavors actively contribute to societal betterment. Indeed, what value does theory hold if it remains disengaged from material realm? Well, I mean, it gets you 
publications in philosophy journals, and it gets you uh, tenure in uh, academia. But it doesn't make any difference for our lived experience. Let's just look around. I mean, this whole podcast is built because we have the inability to talk to each other. Whose failure is that? I'm saying philosophers just completely blew it, especially American philosophers. So what Dewey is trying to show is that philosophy's potential lies in its capacity to foster democracy and to inspire a communal spirit, one that recognizes and actualizes the power of collective intelligence and action. Stir, through Dewey, challenges philosophers to be agents of change, to be stewards of a democracy that is ever-evolving, and to see their work not as an academic exercise. I mean, I'm repeating myself here, right? So why are we here today in this completely incoherent world uh, where things are falling apart literally around us right now? I mean, I'm putting a big blame on philosophers. And another person that put a big blame and a challenge on philosophers was Richard Rorty, right? And a lot of philosophers were not friend, did not like Rorty because he called them out, right? Yeah, I went and looked at some critiques of Rorty. This is a little aside here. I, I read this one paper in a, in a journal article. Uh, I did not uh, cite it. I don't know where it is anymore. I, I, this was about four months ago. But the opening of the paper, the person criticized, this other philosopher criticized uh, Richard Rorty because he used too many citations. He mentioned too many other philosophers. He was annoyed by that. I mean, this is kind of the, the level of debate that's happening in the ivory towers of the philosophical tradition here in the United States. I mean, that's complete garbage. But, you know, Dewey saw this coming in the 1930s and 40s, and he warned us, and he was right. You know, I want to build upon this praxis-orientated role of philosophy that Dewey advocates. You know, I just finished the book Human Nature and Conduct, which was published in 1922, and it sheds some light on the intricate workings of habit within the democratic context that we live in and that Dewey was living in at the time. Now, Dewey argues to, quote, a combination of traditional individualism with the recent interest in progress explains why the discovery of the scope and force of instincts has led many psychologists to think of them as the fountainhead of all conduct, as occupying a place before instead of after that of habits, end quote. This statement echoes the necessity of understanding instinctual drives as precursors to habitual conduct, which can enlighten the process of democratic engagement and transformation. Right? So in Dewey's conception, democracy resembles a living organism animated by the vibrant exchange between individual impulses and shared habits. He suggests it is no accident, this is quoting, it is no accident that men became interested in the psychology of savages and babies when they became interested in doing away with old institutions, end quote. Now, Dewey's choice of words here, particularly savages, reflects the lexicon of his era, a lexicon we now recognize as problematic due to its ethnocentric and colonial connotations. I mean, it actually makes me a little uncomfortable, not a little, it makes me very uncomfortable to use that word, but I wanted to quote Dewey there for what he said. So, yet yeah, at the heart of Dewey's argument, is an early acknowledgement of the value in alternative epistemologies and ontological frameworks, which can reveal diverse modalities of being and interacting in the world. It's really important to understand that these other ways of knowing and being, it's, they, it's critical to being able to look at our current conjuncture and say, wait, how did we get here? Why did we get here? Where could we possibly go? This is what Dewey was challenging us to do over 100 years ago. 
Now, such an understanding calls for a departure from the stagnant perspectivism gestures toward an evolutionary vision within democratic societies. It's an invitation to explore foundational shifts that intertwine both the rediscovery of marginalized wisdoms and epistemologies and the pursuit of innovation rather than merely the abandonment of antiquated traditions. This is very important. What I just said there is a lot in there, right? Now, Dewey intimates that in the reevaluation and potential dismantling of old institutions, there lies an opportunity to embrace a plurality, a plurality of worldviews, thus enriching the democratic tapestry with a multiplicity of understanding and practices. Now, I really want to hammer this point home. The democratic process for Dewey is not just the maintenance of established habits, but the continuous generation of new ones through creative engagement with the present. Dewey further elucidates, quoting here, the incohate and scattered impulses of an infant do not coordinate into serviceable powers except through social dependencies and companionship, end quote. Here, the analogy to infancy suggests that democracy must mature through nurturing relationships and networks that facilitate the growth of adapted and resilient habits, conducive to the common good. Again, individual actions are only legible through the mediation of society and are further mediated and articulated within the socio-ethical background which guides all individual action. It must guide us that way. Without this, it's completely incoherent. This is what reviving virtue is all about articulating this ontological primacy in our society, that your individual actions are made possible only because of society, not in spite of. Fundamentally, ingesting this into your being and daily lived experience is required for a society to remain coherent. It is our hyper-atomized world today which flips this ontological primacy. That is at the root of our fractured society. Dewey saw this coming 100 years ago and courageously fought to build a framework through which modernity and democracy could remain viable. Dewey's work insists on this democratization of creativity and action, the building of our collective capacity for this. This is so important. To bring this back to the responsibility of the philosopher, their role must extend beyond intellectual discourse and encompass the cultivation of habits that foster communal intelligence and shared action that's legible. Right? It is the philosopher who should provide the map for making this legible to society. For what other purpose do they serve? The urgency of this argument is being made in the context of a dissolving democracy, and the evolution of our democracy is contingent upon our ability to perceive and enact it as an emergent collective practice, a practice wherein every individual is both shaped by and instrumental in shaping societal habits. Therefore, integrating Dewey's discourse into our understanding of democracy calls for a recognition of the potential within each individual to contribute to societal progress. Democracy, as Dewey articulates, is not a static state, but a creative journey where, to quote, the hen treats the egg not in terms of the egg, but in terms of the hen which is to be, that potential, right? So translated into the democratic ideal, this means envisioning and working toward not just what the society is, but what it might become through the collective intelligence and actions of its members individually that's made legible through the collective society. I contend that it is not merely beneficial, but essential to weave Dewey's understanding of habit and impulses into the very sinews of our democratic body politic.
our nation's resilience, indeed, the endurance of the broader liberal project, hinges on this integration. A democratic society's vitality springs from its capacity to tolerate, even cherish, the uncertainty inherent in creative action. Such a society must inspire its citizens to rise above entrenched patterns of thought and action, to meet emerging challenges with renewed vigor and adaptable strategies. This is the intelligence that Dewey speaks of. The only way this will happen is if we flip this ontological inversion where the individual is the primary agent and reintegrate the primacy of the community or society as being the background upon which all action is legible. In addition, we must remove the shackles of necessity, the stifling and undemocratic mantra propagated by the neoliberalism, which insists our choices are preordained, bound to the iron wheel of market-driven logics. This is ridiculous. It's human-made. It's a social construct. The resignation to these imagined atemporal laws is the embodiment of cowardice in modern society. In contrast, the courageous path acknowledges the inherent contingency of human action and the institutional process, and through that, the responsibility we each have to embrace this contingency and to make it our own in our vision, not visions dictated by men written long ago. That is the cowardly way, and that is the way we live today. Courage and democracy is manifested through this recognition and exercises of our collective creative power to redefine the very parameters of possibility. It is through such courage and creativity that we can reconstruct a more robust and participatory democratic narrative, one that embraces the organic, evolving nature of society and its institutions. We are at a crossroads of democracy right now. Let's not kid ourselves. We are in a very serious situation. Our collective future hinges on the capacity to discern and direct our impulses. Will we proceed with caution, merely as custodians of an outdated social vision, or will we advance boldly and creatively, acknowledging our duty, our responsibility, to keep enriching this evolving canvas of possibilities? It really is up to us how we shall proceed. This moment is ours to define, whether to inscribe our tenure with the indelible ink of intelligent action or to just merely fade into the margins of democratic history.